Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for Alaist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. As Suzanne said, the rain continues. We've had several days now, and some of it quite heavy. Of course, the effects and the debris flows that were just mentioned, even on the national news, where our weather in Southern California has been the national lead for the past 36 hours or so. We're going to be taking you to a news conference, City of Los Angeles officials, including Mayor Bass, are giving with the very latest details on how the city has been hit. Uh, we're going to go to that uh, momentarily, but joining us is LA's senior, uh, or I should say science reporter, He's, he's not old enough to be senior yet. Uh, Jacob Margolis. Jacob, so good to have you with us this morning. I, I'm getting there, Larry, any more of these storms. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Don't urge it on sooner. It retirement. comes fast enough, I assure you, <laughs> Jacob. Um, so let's talk about um, what we're seeing with, with the current pattern of the storm. Suzanne was just talking about heavy thunderstorms going through central Los Angeles right now. We're still in this. Yeah, absolutely. So this is more of the kind of typical thing that we tend to see with, uh, you know, when it's not an atmospheric river is that all of a sudden out of nowhere, you'll just get these really heavy downpours. And that obviously, for very obvious reasons, can cause uh, saturate the soil to a point where it does just give out like we're seeing all over. A lot of these mudslide problems we're seeing are on what I can tell, it's either the transverse range, so like Santa Monica Mountains. I see one up near like Lopez Canyon, which is a landfill kind of up in the hills back near uh, Pacoima area as well. And so it makes sense that when you have these steep hills that, you know, water and mud's got to go somewhere, especially if it's an area that has burned in recent history. So we should see rates up to three quarters of an inch per hour uh, at times, which are pretty, it's like pretty heavy. Um, and it could definitely cause problems between now and uh, Thursday. So we just got to make it through Thursday. Mm -hmm. and, and we're seeing some of the steeper canyons, narrower canyons, particularly mm -hmm. be it Topanga, of course, yeah. uh, Beverly Glen, uh, you know, right in the heart of the city. So some of these where uh, they're particularly picturesque, but, but narrower canyons with those very steep sides to the canyon are, are seeing those sides coming down. Yeah, and I mean, it's really killed my desire to live in. I mean, I love those canyons, though. Oh, and they're I grew gorgeous. Up going through them. Yeah. They're absolutely beautiful. But, you know, I'm looking right now at a Culver City Alert, for instance, and up in those hills, they have issued a, um, you know, uh, an evacuation warning for residents up there on quite a few different blocks. And if you live in Culver City, you can just head to their website and we'll post something shortly as well. Um, but, you know, the concern is that you're there. Let's say it looks fine. Then all of a sudden, one of those heavy cells comes through and 
then something could happen. The other area we're watching, obviously, and constantly, and even after the storm passes that we'll be watching, obviously, those coastal areas like Palos Verdes, where we saw the landslide back in, uh, what was it, May or June or so. Um, and because the water can percolate over time, if listeners remember, it could take like weeks. Uh, and then all of a sudden, on a sunny day, um, you know, that water reaches one of those layers and just helps them separate and they just slide off. And so we'll definitely be watching those areas as well in the coming weeks. Too. And that's, yeah, and that's kind of the concern that I have is some of the bigger slides that we've seen can be weeks or even months yeah. later as that percolation you're describing takes place. Yeah. And so to, to get into a little more detail, basically what happened was, you know, over eons, uh, you know, over many thousands and thousands of years, you had these layers of different kinds of sediment settle on top of each other. And so what happens is you essentially, um, they're locked in place. And when the water hits one of those layers, it, it, it compromises their ability to stay locked in place. And it's one of the, I mean, it's a part of our geologic history here in Southern California. It's one of the things that actually, you know, it's the same sort of process that actually helped like form our mountains and all these beautiful landscapes we have but it also makes a lot of them very uh very tenuous when it comes to heavy rain all right again we're standing by for the city of los angeles's news conference with the very latest on what's happening and and the public safety and uh services response to the debris flows that we've seen there are power lines that are down with outages uh and and of course some roads that have been made impassable as well so just as soon as they start with the various public safety agencies involved we will bring that to you so you can get the very latest details. Now, as of yesterday when we talked, Jacob, it didn't appear once we're through with this thing, once it gets through like by tomorrow night or whenever it, we don't have anything lined up to come. Is that holding? Yeah, so far, uh, it's looking kind of dry afterwards, but, you know, we'll definitely be recovering. Crews will be out there scraping roads clean and, you know, people will be calling engineers to make sure their homes are okay. And one of the things that another area that I'm watching and particularly interested in is obviously the snow up in the mountains. So it's looking like the Sierra Nevada, which this is really great for water, is uh, getting a fair amount of snow, possibly multiple feet. And then up at uh, Wrightwood, it was 15 inches. Baldy's gotten, you know, above 6,500 feet as received like two feet of snow. Um, so I was just looking at a mountain high camera. And um, once the storm passes, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend people rush up right now because it's still dangerous. But um, it looks like there's going to at least be some good skiing and uh, snowboarding in the coming days. All right, Jacob, thank you so much. We now have that news conference in downtown Thanks, Los Larry. Angeles underway. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
Billy man, come on. Six o'clock news, say somebody been shot. Somebody's been abused. Somebody blew up a building. Somebody stole a car. Somebody got away. Somebody didn't get too far. Grandpappy told my pappy back in my day, son, a man had to answer for That's the hit duet, Beer for My Horses, Toby Keith and Willie Nelson collaborating on that recording. One of many hits for the singer-songwriter, country music, very popular performer who died yesterday at the age of 62. He'd been dealing with stomach cancer. He died surrounded by his family yesterday, Toby Keith, at the age of 62. That song, by the way, came out 21, almost 22 years ago. And Facebook, as I said right before the break, turned 20 on Sunday. Let's take a look at the influence of Facebook, although it's not as popular among younger users as it might have been a generation ago. It still has a huge presence as a social media platform. I'd like to hear from you. What connections did you make with others that you wouldn't have had a chance to do had it not been for Facebook uh, years ago? 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at comments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. With us is Maura Judkiss, features reporter for the Washington Post, who just wrote the article, Facebook is entering middle age, so are you. <laughs> Maura, thank you so much. Good to have you with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So, you know, give us a sense of, of just sort of the the generational impact of Facebook, because as you write in this piece, uh, a whole group, large group of Americans came of age with Facebook. That's right. Um, and I count myself um, among them because Facebook came to my university when I was just entering my sophomore year. Uh, and this was a huge deal at the time. Um, you know, people had other kind of burgeoning social networks like Friendster and MySpace, but they didn't have all the capabilities of Facebook. And the fact that it was kind of limited to your university sort of made it like this playground for college students to explore and, and meet each other and you could connect with people in your classes. Um, it, it wasn't what it is now, which is burdened with ads and giving you all this kind of suggested content that you might not actually be interested in. It was a very, very different user experience at first. Well, and and what are some of the ways in which people, once Facebook opened up to the general public, you know, shared things that they wouldn't necessarily share in the same way today? Right. You know, one of the one of the like elder millennial jokes about Facebook, I would say, is that you used to post so many photos. Like you'd go out um, on a weekend and you'd post. 20 pictures from like your very, very ordinary party that you went to. People would kind of post anything that was on their mind at the time. But then as Facebook broadened to the general public and like, you know, your bosses were on Facebook, your parents were on Facebook, your grandparents were on Facebook, um, people started restricting themselves. And, and then I think in general, everyone sort of got to understand that Many times the internet can be forever and there are consequences for the things you post and, and people are paying attention. Uh, so maybe be a little bit more professional. But at the time, you know, Facebook was just for young people and there wasn't really that perception. 
Uh, I just want to share a piece of breaking news right now, and we'll continue with our Facebook conversation momentarily, but the National Weather Service has just issued a flash flood warning that takes in the communities of Whittier, La Mirada, Norwalk, Roland Heights, and Santa Fe Springs. Apparently there is a cell in that area with particularly heavy rainfall right now. So just a reminder again, do not drive through floodwaters, uh, do not walk through floodwaters, move to higher ground if you see flooding. Uh, where you are. Again, uh, this is a fairly localized cell, but a flash flood warning has just been issued in the communities of La Mirada, Norwalk, Santa Fe Springs, Whittier, and Roland Heights. We're talking about Facebook and the difference it brought to people's lives once they started using the social media platform, the connections they were able to make. JC in Hollywood, good to have you with us. What did Facebook bring to your life? I'm JC, and I am from Hollywood. Yes. Yeah. So what did Facebook bring to your life? It it was a valuable, valuable tool for me because I, uh, being in Hollywood, I lost contact with all the people from my home back in the South, and Facebook has brought us all back together, and it's been wonderful. But um, as I was telling the person before I came on, it's changing and it concerns me because I'm seeing a lot more spam in Facebook now. And a lot of my friends' accounts are being compromised and they're putting pornography on it. And that disturbs me. I don't think it's being regulated enough anymore. JC, thank you for your call. Uh, Maura Judkiss, uh, what are some of the ways that, that people have become disillusioned by Facebook? Yeah, you know, I talked to a lot of people for this story um, who had been interviewed by their college newspapers, like in the very earliest phases of Facebook, and they were so excited to join this really cool new social networking tool. Um, And it's funny because a a great majority of them barely even use it anymore. Um, You know, they have found that they've migrated to Instagram because Instagram is a little bit more fun, uh, in part because they grew weary of all of the toxic political discourse that took place on Facebook over the last few election cycles. Uh, They've also felt like Facebook's algorithm has been feeding them things that they aren't really interested in. Uh, There's been a huge push for advertising on Facebook. Um, I myself, when I log into Facebook, see a bunch of suggested groups for things that I have almost no interest in. Uh, You know, the algorithm uh, and and the lack of ability to manipulate or customize that uh, has really turned people away from the platform, especially people who were among its earliest and most enthusiastic users. Mm. And uh, what what is the percentage, the share of social media platforms among younger users, people in their 20s, say through mid 30s? Where are they gravitating? So a lot of them are still on Facebook. They just use it less frequently. Uh, I think there was a Pew study that came out recently, uh, and I forget the exact numbers, but a a majority of those people in that age group still have accounts on Facebook. They just aren't really logging in as frequently or even every day like they used to. Um, Many of them have migrated to Instagram. Um, TikTok tends to skew a little bit younger as well, but people, people are exploring that platform too. 
All right, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Pauline in West Los Angeles emailed, I've met lots of great neighbors, made friends through our very supportive local Buy Nothing Facebook group. Good for the community, the environment, and my pocketbook. And Peter in Sherman Oak says, I grew up in Indonesia but moved away. I'd lost touch with so many of my schoolmates. Facebook put me back in touch with them. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. You know, that for me, Maura, is what I think is one of the biggest achievements of Facebook, and it might have happened through another social media platform uh, had timing been different, but Facebook really is the place, like in Peter's circumstance, where people reconnected with old friends and um, have the kinds of of decades-long reconnections that rarely used to happen before. Yeah, it's true. One thing that I find very comforting about Facebook is that I can kind of keep tabs on people's lives without uh, without really connecting with them, which, you know, can be good and bad. Uh, but there's a comfort in knowing that, like, all of the people I went to high school with uh, are out there living their lives and that I can see their beautiful children and see that they're doing well at work. And, you know, even some of my high school teachers are on Facebook. Um as well as some distant family members. And we can all kind of just like see that everyone is is hanging in there and doing well and, and know the basic outline of their life without actually having to put in too much effort for better and worse. All right, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. So for uh, Meta, the, the parent company, as as Facebook has has lost some of its luster, uh, certainly the company is, is not hurting. It's found other ways to make revenue. Right. And it's funny because so many people say now like, oh, well, I don't use Facebook anymore. I'm on Instagram, but they're the same company. So, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is still winning. <laughs> doesn't He doesn't care as long as they're on, on his platform. 866-893-5722. We're talking with Maura Judkus, who is features reporter for The Washington Post, her recent piece, Facebook is entering middle age. So are you. Uh, let's see. We have, uh, oh, Lucy, our producer says, I met my boyfriend through Facebook Marketplace. I bought a camera from him after we met up for the exchange. I messaged him, asked him on a date. That was over a year ago. Suffice to say, that's definitely one of the more positive experiences that I've had on Facebook. Lucy, that's a great, a great story. Scott and Sherman Oaks emailed 15 years ago when I decided at the age of 54 to join Facebook as a way to reconnect with people from the past. But I was smart enough to realize the platform could be trouble. I vowed at that time to never post or comment on either politics or religion. I've remained faithful to that decision and have remained friends with many that would have otherwise dissolved. Uh, Jacqueline emailed, I found two Swiss girls I traveled with over 25 years ago in New Zealand. I'd lost touch with them, found a letter from them, then looked up their names in Facebook to reconnect. Luckily, they remembered me. Now I hope to go visit them in Zurich sometime soon. Couldn't have done that without Facebook. Uh, So, Maura, let's talk about what, you know, why other platforms 
I mean, they've all had their own problems, of course. X, uh, formerly Twitter, a prime example. But what is it about uh, the logarithms of Facebook, sort of the the problems that it's had um, that maybe other platforms have figured out? Well, one thing about um, what algorithms tend to prioritize in social media uh, is that they want engagement. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people found that during the election, um, engagement kind of <laughs> translated to political conflict. You know, people are very engaged when they want to prove that someone else is wrong or they want to get into a debate. Um, and so I think a lot of what happened was that people got very turned off by seeing that kind of strife. Um, and so then when there were fewer people posting because they were turned off by this platform, uh, they, you know, the, the algorithm had to fill in with other things. And so that's how you end up getting these suggested posts for like a million different ads or like I was scrolling through Facebook just before this and um, I was getting a lot of home design uh, groups that I was not even a part of, um, you know, it just kind of fills in what it thinks you want to know. Uh, and I guess because I am like in my late thirties, maybe it thinks I'm renovating a house, which I'm not, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to customize. Uh, and then when you see fewer of the things that actually draw you to this platform, which are your friends and your updates of your friends, uh, it's just making people kind of turn away from it, unfortunately. And I think we see that with X too. Like there has been a lot of political conflict on that site as well. Um, and that's a, that's a choice. That's a priority prioritization of what drives engagement. Barbara in Hollywood gets the last word on this. My dad reconnected with his high school girlfriend. They married, and uh, that was all as a result of a connection from Facebook. Barbara, thank you so much for that. And thank you, Maura Judkus of The Washington Post, for talking with us about your piece on the 20th anniversary of Facebook. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we're going to take a look at the rise of vacationing, uh, vacationing alone for couples that are married. What's leading to that increase in people deciding they're just going to go by themselves on trips? And if you think, you know, these are largely widows because men on average die younger, that's part of it, but not the whole story. We'll talk about some of the reasons why when we come back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. 
So good to have you with us. You know, every March, as longer time listeners of Air Talk might know, I go to Arizona for spring training baseball. I take that trip by myself. My wife is typically working uh, with her job with the Glendale Unified School District. They're not on break at the time. I'm able to go because when her spring break comes, we're typically in an on-air fun drive here. So I have to work during that time when she has her vacation. So um, I thoroughly enjoy going by myself, watching spring training baseball. It's it's uh, an obsession of mine, and I can fully uh, you know, uh, immerse myself in it. I might go to two games in one day an afternoon and an evening game, and and do it fully on my terms. And I really enjoy that experience. I found it fascinating that apparently uh, for married couples or or long-term partners, uh, that vacationing alone has become uh, a larger and larger trend. And writing about it for the Wall Street Journal is Allison Poley, reporter who covers travel, and her recent piece is The Trick to a Great Marriage, Vacation Without Your Partner. Allison, so good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, where do we see this rise? Are there particular types of trips that we see married people going solo? Is it pretty much across the board? There are types of trips and types of people. So a lot of people, as you mentioned, are in a similar in a situation similar to yourself and your wife, where maybe they have different um, time off from work and one has a special interest that they take that time to pursue. But we do see this happening a lot more with couples who are age 55 and older. So a lot of times these are people who are close to retirement or retirees who are taking advantage of this time to pursue trips that they weren't able to do in the past. All right. And um, what are some of the advantages that people report on on taking the time to themselves? I mean, I'm happy to share in a moment my why I like doing it, but what do people say about those trips? Yeah, I think you'll identify with some of these these travelers I spoke to. So they mentioned that they are not beholden to any agenda. They can kind of just do whatever they want while they're traveling. So one person I spoke to mentioned that if she wants to go somewhere and have the same thing for three meals a day, she is welcome to do that. She can eat whenever she wants. She can go visit things that she wants to see. She doesn't have to work around anyone else's schedule or preferences. And because of that, she feels like it makes her relationship stronger and she can come back home to her husband and tell him about all the things that she did. Um, And she said it's very beneficial for their marriage in that way. Yeah, I, uh, that's wonderful. And, you know, I, I love traveling with my wife. She's a terrific travel companion, so we take great trips together. But when I go by myself, you know, I may go the whole day without talking to anyone except maybe um, a server in a restaurant, for example. And I, as someone who talks for a living and I talk with people all day long, there's something wonderful about not having to respond to anybody unless I choose to. And just the the quiet of that, just being sort of an observer of the world, 
I love. And that's something, as much as I love traveling with my wife, I would be interacting with her throughout the day, and it would be a very different experience. So I'd love to hear from listeners. If you're someone who does solo travel and you're in a committed relationship or married to someone, what are the reasons? What types of trips are you apt to do on your own? Is this largely interest-driven? Is it about being to yourself, being away? Um, There are retreats, for example, that people will go on spiritually or otherwise where uh, this may be just, you know, uh, the interest of one person in the relationship, and you're able to do that with like-minded people. 866-893-5722. George in Long Beach, please share your experience of traveling alone. Hey, Harry, another really amazing episode. Really glad to hear it. I'm glad you're not on vacation and talking to us. Thank you. <laughs> um, Thank you. I've been married for like about 10 years, and you know, after a while of, you know, it's just always been traveling together. And something that I've, you know, we've recently started doing in the past maybe three or four years is, you know, doing trips by ourselves. I've noticed that it really encourages more, like, personal development. There are more thoughts and more, you know, inner, inner, inner like, kind of thinking or, or things that I do and things that I think about that I would not do normally because I'm, you know, I'll have some of my energy being focused to another person and, and our plans and I need to be more meticulous. And if I'm traveling uh, by myself, I'm just, I'm focused on myself and my own enjoyment, which leads to, you know, being able to, 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 to come back happier. Yeah. Yeah. George, it makes perfect sense. 866-893-5722. Allison, how are companies that offer, offer travel services adapting to this? So some of them are offering discounts on single rooms and others are creating itineraries for people who are traveling solo. So in the in these cases, tour companies will um, recruit people specifically who are traveling without a companion. Everyone's somewhat in the same situation and they might organize social events for everybody so they get to know each other and can become familiar with each other. And a lot of people who do these trips say maybe they were intimidated at first, but they are bonded by a shared interest. So maybe they're going on a trip centered on an educational interest or taking a tour of a specific place. So it helps them get to know the other people there. Marie in Manhattan Beach says, I've been thinking of doing trips on my own, but I'm worried about safety. How can I be safe traveling alone as a woman? Marie, an excellent question. And I'm sure that, you know, for many women considering doing this, that's that's a significant consideration. What advice do you have for Allison? Absolutely. And so the women who have done this say it's important to build up your confidence. So they do not suggest taking an international trip for a week or two weeks if this isn't something you've done before. It's better to start smaller and perhaps try an overnight or a weekend trip. A lot of women say they prefer going to urban areas or going to scheduled groups or retreats. For example, maybe there's a wellness retreat or an overnight weekend quilting weekend, something that um, can get their confidence up to traveling solo. And then once they are in the destination, remaining alert and aware is very important. Some women have said that they will let the hotel front desk know of their plans for the day, for example. So if anything were to happen, 
someone is expecting them back and knows where they've been throughout the day. That's a good idea. Marie, hope that's helpful. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. We're talking about uh, married men and women taking trips solo, not going with your partner or with your spouse, uh, what some of the advantages of that are, and perhaps some of the best trips that you've had going alone. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in one minute. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. There are multiple reports, not including from the Dodgers themselves. The team has not put out a statement, but multiple reports that Clayton Kershaw has reached a deal to return to the Dodgers. He's not expected to be able to to pitch competitively until at least midseason as he'll be coming off surgery. But there are multiple reports, uh, including from uh, journalists close to the team, that a deal has been reached with Kershaw. So uh, we can't fully take that to the bank yet, but that sounds very, very promising to bring uh, uh, another left-hander and particularly one of historic stature back to the team. We're talking about traveling alone, some of the advantages of doing that, even if you are in a wonderful married or or deeply committed relationship. Lita in Van Nuys, uh, please share with us about your uh, solo traveling experiences. Yes, I travel alone often. I work for a local school district, and my now husband doesn't have the same kind of time off or vacation time that I have. And so he's recently given his blessings, and he knows that even before we were together, I like traveling alone. And uh, he has given me a short list of places I'm not allowed to go without him, first of all. So uh, I respect that, and then I get to choose. Sometimes I go locally, and sometimes I go internationally. And I'm currently actually planning a trip for my upcoming spring break. That's great. Where are you going to go? Well, I don't know. Uh, I have a couple places in mind, but um, there are some, some situations in the world that make it a little more difficult. So yeah. so I was considering Dubai, but uh, I'm looking at other places as well. I like to kind of, I do wait a little bit to the last minute because it's coming up in March. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, very good. And so these are places it sounds like your husband wouldn't necessarily have the same degree of interest you do. And then you say for things he's really interested in, you make sure not to go on those trips by yourself. I'm trying. I'm really trying. <laughs> I've traveled a lot of places and so has he. And so that list is getting smaller and smaller. So there's some negotiation there. That's, that's... Uh, He's listening right now. So <laughs> he knows um, I'm really working hard on that to not to not violate that. And then we are also planning trips together. He's a great travel partner. Uh, I know we like traveling together and, and with our kids as well. So uh, we try to do things together and, um, you know, I'm also encouraging him to do some things on his own too. He doesn't again, have the same amount of time that I do, but, but I would love it if he would take some small trips by himself as well. Okay. And if he's listening, so he'll probably start planning that. Lita, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, uh, with my wife and I, it's a similar thing. During her spring break last year, she went with our son to Guatemala. And, um, you know, that's a place that... that uh, 
is not on the top of my list. Uh, had she gone to Italy with our son, I would have uh, thrown a fit because um, <laughs> I've not had a chance to get to Italy and it's at the top of my list. So uh, anyway, great to hear how couples negotiate this. Allison Poli is reporter who covers travel for the Wall Street Journal and recently wrote about this. Is that something you found, Allison, the couples you sort of have to reach agreement on the places for this to work in an ideal uh, circumstance? Absolutely. As she mentioned, it's important to discuss where you're going before you go. So one person doesn't feel as though they're missing out. And ideally, these would be conversations where you both can say where you'd like to travel. Or in some cases, one partner just isn't interested in traveling, but maybe there's something they'd like to do closer to home that weekend, whether it's go on a fishing trip or go on a a smaller getaway. It's important to have those conversations in advance so one person doesn't feel left out and like they missed on a big trip of a lifetime. Phil in Whittier says, my wife and I recently took separate trips to Europe. She got a chance to do the things she wanted to do in Italy. I got a chance to do what I wanted to do in Spain. That's Phil in Whittier. Francesca in Baldwin Hills uh, has traveled on her own uh, a number of places and just wants to share uh, some tips that she's learned. Francesca, thank Thanks very much. What's your advice to other women traveling solo? Yeah, I think I, I heard the call, uh, the comment made earlier that um, uh, for different women to get used to it, to get confidence. And I think one of the things that always gave me confidence, I traveled for three weeks by myself to Costa Rica um, and Europe, different places. And I think one of the things is making sure that the place you're going is, you know, is, is a calm place. It's not it's not like between two countries that are not getting along. It's and I one of the reasons I chose Costa Rica was that it was a very nonviolent country. The other thing is making sure this isn't a time to go backpacking, you know, or even hiking on your own. Um, so you've got to have a, a very rigid, I would say, itinerary. You've got to have hotels expecting you, um, and like the person said, letting people know what you're doing for the day. And things need to be, they're a bit less spontaneous. I mean, there's certainly wandering around and shopping and things like that. But for the major parts of your trip, um, having that itinerary so people know where you are and where, when to expect you would be important. Yeah. That was important to me. And that made me feel safe. And, and I would assume, you know, since cell phones became uh, ubiquitous, that th- that helps also because, I mean, not to say you can't lose it or, or uh, be victimized, um, but, but having a phone has got to give an additional sense of confidence, Francesca. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I traveled before all of that. So, um, but I think also just, you know, because people kind of forget when you're on your trip, you're not really necessarily, I mean, sometimes you're checking in. I wasn't always, but um, sometimes it's, especially if you go to a remote or more remote place, um, there's just some the sort of bookmarks between where you should be. It's just faster to find you if you've lost it, if you're in trouble. Francesca, thank you for the terrific advice. Really appreciate it. Joining us from Baldwin Hills. Uh, let me share some emails we've received. Uh, Catherine in La Mirada, I've been traveling solo for 40 years. My first trip was a 40-day tour of Europe. Since I've been married, I've gone to Comic-Con and the Texas State Fair alone. I'm looking forward to a trip to Spain and Portugal. Doug in San Dimas emailed, my wife and I are recently retired while we still travel often together. In two weeks, she's heading... A t-
prep for a river cruise. I'm going to the desert in my Jeep. We love being together, but our separate interests don't always align. I think it's great. We love each other, but sometimes you need to pursue your own special interests. Uh, Kevin in Long Beach emailed, It trips me out more couples don't do their own individual thing from time to time. My wife and I have always done that. There was never a question uh, that's how things were going to be. I always thought it was weird when people were weirded out by it. That's Kevin in Long Beach. Uh, And we also have Catherine in Laguna Hills. I've been traveling alone since I was a teenager. I'm 63 now. I highly recommend it, but you do have to be careful. It's really nice to have that space to myself. And Guy in Tustin says, I'm retired. I recently read Allison's uh, article in the Wall Street Journal. My wife and I like going on trips together. We wouldn't travel alone. We have similar tastes and find enjoyment in each other's company. Guy, thank you so much for that. Allison Paul, thank you for talking about your Wall Street Journal article, The Trick to a Great Marriage, Vacation Without Your Partner. It's been great also to hear from our listeners. It has. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We appreciate it. Uh, And just want to remind you, coming up next hour on Air Talk, we are scheduled to be joined by L.A. Mayor Karen Bass, although I'm sure you can understand her schedule is very jammed as uh, she and other L.A. officials are responding to uh, one of the heaviest rain periods in the history of the city. But we are uh, hoping that she's going to be with us uh, next hour to give us the very latest on emergency response in the city of L.A. to the storm. We're also going to be talking with the final one of our DA candidates joining us. Uh, He's uh, an attorney here in Los Angeles. He's run for office on previous occasions, and we'll hear why he's running for L.A. County DA. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Support for LAist comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. Later this hour, we'll take a look at why so many of the public EV charging stations aren't working. What's the challenge with keeping those chargers maintained? We'll find out. We've got a couple of experts just a few minutes away. And we'll also talk with the final one of the L.A. County District Attorney's candidates. Attorney Dan Kapelovitz will be joining us to talk about his candidacy. That's coming up plus a look at pop songs, why they've gotten so much shorter in the last few years. Uh, No surprise, social media is at least partly at play. But with us first, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass. It's uh, day two historic rainfall that we're seeing in Southern California. Mayor Bass, thank you for being with us. 
Of course. Always happy to be with you. Well, thanks. Just uh, give us a sense of, of uh, particularly with utilities, what's going on right now in Los Angeles, where I know there are still people without power because trees have brought down power lines. Absolutely. Well, I, I believe at this point in time, the last number I heard, we have about 7,000 uh, Angelinos who are without power. But I will tell you that yesterday, power was restored to 54,000 people. So uh, I am hoping that it doesn't go higher than 7,000, but I can assure Angelinos that the Department of Water and Power, Public Works, all of the various city agencies are focusing on restoring power right now. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, because I know you're dealing with, with the immediate challenge, but what we saw last year after the historic rain that we had was a huge increase in potholes, and, and not just ones that are uncomfortable to drive over, but car-damaging potholes, right. sometimes making roads impassable. Uh, do you have anything in place right now for crews to be able to quickly respond to those? Uh, Yes, we are making sure that we're riding around the city and looking for that type of damage, especially the ones that uh, could damage cars. And so uh, Angelinos need to know that they can call 311 and report that. And then also, if there is damage, it is possible uh, to get assistance uh, with that. So 311 to report a pothole, and our teams are out there uh, 24-7 looking to cover up the pothole so that there's not further damage or injury. I was also wondering about, um, with so many thousands of people in the city living on the streets or in their vehicles, what have you seen in the way of demand for shelter beds, and and have um, there been enough weather shelters to accommodate the people seeking protection? Well, there are definitely not enough shelters, considering we have 46,000 people. The majority of them, two-thirds, are unhoused. I will tell you, though, that the shelters that we have set up, uh, with maybe one or two exceptions, are full. And uh, LASA, the Los Angeles uh, Homeless Service Authority, that is a joint city-county effort, they started doing outreach days and days before the, the storm hit. When we knew this system was coming in, we went out to talk to unhoused Angelinos to tell them to seek shelter, and they definitely uh, took that um, advice. I will tell you that yesterday we had a problem with a tiny home village in the valley that had flooded, and we had to evacuate and move, offer uh, temporary shelter to over 100 people, Um, Many of them did go into a nearby shelter in the San Fernando Valley, so we are always at the ready to move people. We had a shelter that was unoccupied, so we moved the people from the tiny home village to that shelter. And then they'll be able to move back into the tiny homes once those are dried out? You know, Larry, that's a real good question. We are evaluating those tiny homes right now to see whether or not they're going to be able to do that. You might have heard that... um, In my press conference last evening, uh, President Biden called, and uh, he asked what we needed. And I'm preparing a list, and I will call uh, the White House today. One of the things I'm going to be asking for are emergency vouchers so that the individuals that are in our shelters that are unhoused, we don't want to put them back on the street. We would like to provide them with housing. And so we're going to look to do that, but we are going to need emergency vouchers, and that is going to be at the top of my list. 
Yeah, well, especially if this isn't the last rainstorm that we get this season, it would be nice to have something ongoing for folks so they're they're not hit by this yet again, uh, you know, a week or two down the road. Mayor Bass, thank you so much. We really appreciate you updating us on what's going on with the city and its response to the historic rain. Absolutely. Always happy to come on the show, Larry. Thank you for what you do. Thanks so much. L.A. Mayor Karen Bass with us on Air Talk. Well, public chargers are having tough times. Those that are operated by non-Tesla companies uh, are up to 30% of the time inoperative uh, because of technical problems. That according to studies that have been done of uh, the charging station network here in California. This as millions and millions of dollars are being invested in building out the EV charging infrastructure. With us to talk about why we're seeing such a problem with maintaining the facilities is the director of the plug-in hybrid and Electric Vehicle Research Center at UC Davis, Gil Tal. Gil, so good to have you with us again. Um, why is this proving to be so challenging? Hey, good morning. Yes, it is challenging. Um, it's a new technology, and uh, we are learning on the job, all, all of us. Chargers that are not working well in very hot weather, a payment system that, that are failing, um, new cars coming to the market and have a little bit different uh, electronics on them and they not communicate well with the chargers all of these things are happening on top of uh, other consumers issues of knowing how to operate how to find the chargers having the right app uh it's 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 all learning on everyone is learning on the job it's getting better fast but it is a problem right now how have the tesla chargers been able to avoid the uh same kinds of problems or at least to the same degree as the other ones um, Tesla have a, a very much like Apple, uh, a, a closed circle when they have the hardware and the software. It was only Tesla chargers and Tesla cars. Uh, it's much easier than uh, chargers from many different providers, charging vehicles from many different uh, car companies, uh, operated by different operating companies. Uh, that was um, for for Tesla. They they did it uh, in a very easy way because it was closed. When they will open for other cars, which is happening soon, uh, I I guess that they will also have more issues there. Well, yeah, and, and the other thing, um, when Tesla chargers are available to all these other EVs. Um, isn't that going to be a problem for Tesla owners because they're going to they're going to have the same access problems that people of non-Tesla EVs have now? Um, this is one option um, that uh, we uh, we will see more uh, congestion at the chargers. We are seeing it already holidays and other days that people are waiting for a long time, and with more cars coming, char- uh, Tesla will need to build way more chargers. The other option uh, that it have its own problem is the Tesla uh, will prioritize their cars over others. There is no regulation against prioritizing. They can either sell better prescriptions or better options. Uh, same as the going to the airport, you can pay more and uh, get a fast lane. Uh, so and and then we have a problem with people who will buy the used cars or the old cars. Will they get the same service? 
Uh, so these things are still open, and we will need to work on new policies. I was reading a Los Angeles Times story by Russ Mitchell in which he quotes a, a Kia representative uh, who, who said that what they found in their customer research is that the biggest impediment that potential EV uh, buyers cite for not following through is their lack of confidence in the charging network. And uh, so I wonder, Gil, how much... Of of an impediment, do you see this being the sales of EVs? Um, right now, there is a huge gap between the perceived issues and the actual issues. We find that most people, in the end, charge with no problem. They have we have good stories, some horror stories, but in the end, most people are able to charge. Uh, it's the, the consumer experience is not great, um, and people when they start driving electric, they when they learn how to run the system, they it's not a real issue. But uh, we we still need to work on it. I I don't think that that will be the main reason for people not to buy electric. Uh, it's more the knowledge gap than the actual charging gap that is is uh, the kind of the barrier. Well, if if twenty to thirty percent of them are out of order, though, is that really a knowledge gap or just coming to terms with the reality that it's that's a problem? It's it's very much depends. So if if a Tesla have hundred chargers in the middle of the city. Uh, and 20 of them are not working, that's not a real issue. Uh, at the same time, if we have a charger in a rural area that 20% of the time, it's the only charger there and 20% of the time it's not working, that's that's a much bigger problem. Uh, and that's what we need to target, kind of making sure that people have a dependable network, that they can depend on it without thinking twice, start traveling. Um, and, and that is getting better faster. But for most people, uh, they have this 80 out of 100 option, and they don't even see that 20 of them are, are offline. All right. We're talking with Gil Tal, a frequent guest with us on AirTalk from UC Davis, where he directs the Plug-In Hybrid and Electric Vehicle Research Center. Also with us is Matt Trout. Uh, his company, Trout Electric, is an electric charging maintenance company based in Riverside. Matt, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, with gas stations, of course, you do have an attendant on duty who, even if that person isn't interacting with the customers, if a pump goes out of order, there's someone to report it to, and and the attendant can, you know, contact and, and get the maintenance person out. What happens when EV chargers go down? Is there a, a direct report that the unit is out of service? So, yeah, so gas stations, you're exactly right. There's somebody there, report it, it gets fixed immediately. Uh, a lot of charging networks um, have smart chargers that do send a signal back to then get service out to that uh, that exact station. Uh, but there's also a lot of chargers out in the wild that do not have that. It's not closely monitored. Um, so that is what we're working on. We are working on, uh, there's not a lot of people that are doing maintenance right now on EV charging. It's kind of the, the same thing. We've seen this movie before. Every single revolution's had problems, and it brings innovation. Uh, and that innovation is currently undergoing, and, and we're, we're seeing it lifetime. We're, we're becoming a little bit better every day with being able to solve these problems in a quick manner to where these stations are not out for for longer than say 48 hours. Um, we've had the same thing. We actually have uh, uh, electric vehicles for all of our permit uh, runners. So any inspection that we have, we have an electric vehicle that goes out to uh, meet the inspector 
And we have the same problems out in the wild where we go and, you know, they have four chargers and there's no attendance, there's no store. It's just four chargers there and there's nobody really to report that to. Uh, so we're really, really re- relying on the, um, the uh, technology to be able to report that and then get it back to a company like ourselves. It uh, seems also. So, well, I was just going to uh, say, it seems odd to me that there's not a code that could be scanned on the charger or something for a person to report it. It would it would seem like it would be in the company's interest because they're looking to sell electricity um, to get the quickest possible report that they need to send someone out. That's exactly right. So, yeah, a lot of these issues are, are being worked out. It's a brand new, brand new innovation that, that's revolution, I should say, that, that's come out, and all these little issues are are now coming to light, and we are responding to them. Um, like for example, Trout Electric uh, was recently acquired by a national provider called Qmerit, uh, and Qmerit is their primary focus right now is on maintenance and making sure that we are doing everything that we can to take that stigma away from from EV chargers being down and, and having that that really seamless interaction with every car. You know, that's the end goal is to to be able to do that. And and with technology going, I mean, I, I I'm very, very optimistic that within a few years this won't even be a topic. It'll be just like gas stations. They're still going to a gas station today. I, I went this morning actually and there was two pumps out of ten yeah. that were not working. Sure. You know, so it, uh, it it's a problem even in gas stations. Uh, it's a little bit more so in the electrical stations because we don't have as many electrical charging uh, stations that we do gas stations right now. But it's quickly uh, we're we're quickly filling that gap. It sounds like you're you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that for many of these charging stations, they don't have maintenance contracts where they have techs come out, look over everything, you know, seeing if connections getting loose, if there's something that needs to be dealt with. That it's all you know driven. It's all reactive. It's not proactive. Is is that what you're saying? That is is a correct statement from the very beginning, and we're seeing that kind of change as, you know, the the federal grants and the state grants come out. They're actually tied to having, for example, there's a few that that actually require a 10-year service maintenance with that rebate. Uh, So that's kind of the early thought of this was it was more reactive, right? Like, so we were waiting for a a station to go down. We'd send somebody out um, to fix that. Well, now with with the federal and the state grants going out, it's a little bit more proactive approach to where we're we're keeping the chargers up and running rather than waiting for them to go out to make repairs. Let me take a listener call. Please hold that thought. That's Matt Trout. He's president of Trout Electric, which does maintenance on electric charging stations throughout uh, California. It's based in Riverside. Ben in Mid-City, Los Angeles. Uh, Please share with us your experience. I understand you and your partner both drive EVs. Yeah, we live in an apartment, so we can't charge at home, and uh, neither of us drive a Tesla, and so we're constantly confronted by um, either full chargers, like there's not nearly enough of them to support the number of EV drivers that are out there, or ones that are out of order. Your previous guest was sort of implying it's more perception than reality, and that's absolutely not our experience, that we're constantly trying to go to chargers, and 
at least half of them are out of order. The closest high-speed charger to me uh, is at the Westfield Century City. And out of, I don't know how many thousands of parking spots in that mall, there are three charging stations. It just seems kind of ridiculous for a big high-end mall like that. And currently, of the three, one of them is out of order. Ben, I appreciate you sharing your experience. Jeff, in Mid-City, Los Angeles as well, please share with us your experience as an EV driver. I bought an EV a little over a year ago uh, from a company that doesn't need any more publicity, and I did it based on the fact that the, the charging network was so robust compared to everybody else. And using, I, I rented two different types for two weeks, uh, one of this company and one of another company, uh, and the experience was exactly what they're talking about. 30% of them were usually broken from this non-major company. And also, the, you could see which, which networks were there that were basically incentivized by a market, which was, hey, let's embrace all this and put everything toward it, and which were mandated by the courts, which would be the one that Volkswagen started. And, that, and, and the, the issue is really incentivization and even the other random chargers that are at different like supermarket parking lots and things like that, you'll find those disrepair. And when you ask why they haven't been fixed for over a year, you'll find out it's up to the landowner to re- request the repair. And they don't feel like they're making enough to, to, to pay for the cost of the okay. repair. So, so these EV stations will go in disrepair for a year and a half or more. So that's interesting you say that, Jeff. So they don't see enough profit margin in selling Jews selling the the electricity. Um, Gil Tal of UC Davis, can you respond to that? So that so that your, your it, listener yeah. was hitting the nail on the head. The big term or the the, the that we need to change is to have a, a business model that will be for, profitable for this charging infrastructure. If the if the business model will be solid and they will make money on selling charging events or ch- selling electricity, then they will make sure that it works. Any other way by regulation will be second best. Uh, but selling electricity is a very cheap commodity. So the government will need to find a way to create business models that will subsidize uptime, that will subsidize the service and not the hardware. Uh, when they just subsidize the hardware, we see how they're not maintaining it as we like it to be. And this is the big change that will have to happen in the next couple of years behind just fixing the hardware, the technology. We will have to find good business models for both downtown LA, but also the rural areas uh, to make these charges work. And and this is already a discussion that the state is, is having now. All right. Uh, Mike in, uh, we didn't email his location, says 20% chargers down is acceptable in a metro area. Seems like uh, that's too dismissive of people's concerns about what seems like many of us still have too high an out-of-commission rate. Cesar emailed, it's depressing how many of these very expensive chargers sit useless after being broken. The whole system relies on cheap parking spaces, the least likely to be well-guarded against vandals, rain, or simply misuse. And Matt Peterson, the CEO of the L.A. Climate 
Incubator. Says one of our startups at the Incubator, Charger Help, does this very work to diagnose and maintain EV chargers, which 80% of the time don't work because of non-electrical issues. Yeah, Matt, we actually had on, uh, I believe it was the chief executive of Charger Help to talk about that and also how they're training people to become technicians to go out and do this maintenance work on the publicly available EV chargers. I want to thank our guest, Gil Tal of UC Davis, joins us frequently to talk about the latest on EVs. He directs the Plug-In Hybrid and Electric Vehicle Research Center at Davis, and Matt Trout, president of Trout Electric, an electric charging maintenance company based in Riverside. Uh, Jeff in Glendale says, I can't stand when they build the charging stations that they don't put any lanes or waiting spaces for people, so it turns into the Wild West. It's stomach-churning. That's Jeff in Glendale. You can share your comments, of course, at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. I go back and read those comments even after the end of our segments. Coming up, we talk with a candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney, the final one of the candidates who's joining us, all of those interviews, by the way, are available at las.com slash voter game plan. You'll see the links to all the interviews. We'll have our next one coming up in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney Dan Kapelovitz. He's a criminal defense attorney. He's previously run in the gubernatorial recall race and uh, also was candidate for state attorney general. Dan Kapelovitz, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Huge fan, longtime listener, first time guest. <laughs> first time guest. All right. So let's start with uh, what is your relevant experience that you're attempting to bring to the DA's office? Okay. Well, I'm the only candidate who is a criminal defense attorney. I've been a uh, doing criminal defense for over 10 years. Uh, I'm the only candidate who's in the county courtrooms every single day all over the county. I see what's really happening. I see what's going on, that Gascon's directives are not being implemented because his line deputies do not listen to him, do whatever they want. Um, I'm the only candidate basically has had uh, – kind of a full life. I didn't go directly to law school and then a prosecutorial's office, prosecutorial DA's office. I've actually, I know people of all kinds. I've had a, you know, wide experience. I know how to talk to the people. I deal with people charged with crimes all the time. I kind of know how they think and how to prevent crime. What, what um, can you describe your clientele for, for which you do criminal defense work, the types of cases you take? Um, pretty much anything. I am on a, the bar panel where I get appointed by the courts to represent people, indigent defendants who are uh, have a conflict with the public defender offices. I'm also the only candidate who gets appointed by the courts to represent victims and witnesses to protect their uh, constitutional rights. So that's most of your practice is, is the court referrals for that work? About 80 percent, 80, 90 percent. Just depends. Now, you, you said that um, there's not cooperation of uh, the management within the DA's office to carry out the directives of the DA. In what areas are you specifically seeing that lack of follow through? Well, for instance, enhancements, they're being alleged all the time. 
In fact, Gascon's policy now is to um, allege an aggravating factor in almost every uh, charging document, which adds makes it so uh, a defendant can face the high term. They just a new law said that the presumptive uh, punishment is a midterm. It's usually a lot of crimes that have a triad, and now they're seeking the high term, even when they say they're just not even seeking jail time, but they want to have this, uh, you know, three years in prison or whatever, five years in prison hanging over someone's head. It either coerces innocent people to plead guilty, or they just want to have it over their head if they're on probation, or they want them to get the high term. And it's so easy to allege this because it could be anything such as um, a vulnerable victim, which is pretty much every case, or there's some planning involved, which is pretty much every case. So they allege it in every case. So let me just clarify, make sure I understand you. So you're you're saying the DA's office overcharges in most of these criminal cases leverage against the defendant, even if they're not seeking sentences that would be commensurate with the enhancements. Is that is that right? Correct. And maybe Gascon saying, well, seeking the aggravating factor, alleging that's not an enhancement, but it does the same thing. And he does allege enhancements. He's gone back on his policies, um, mainly for political reasons. Um, there are some things he doesn't do, like gang enhancements, which is very good because those have been implemented in a very racist manner. 99% of people uh, with gang enhancements are people of color. So that's one thing he has done and his deputies have listened to. All right. Well, and, and I mean, is that demographics, though, that you don't have as many white youths who are in criminal gangs? Well, it defen- depends how you define a criminal gang. If it's a bunch of white people who commit a crime, they're a social club or they're deputy criminal gangs, which are biracial, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it just depends how you define a criminal gang. And also, a lot of times they say that crimes are done for the benefit of the gang. For instance, if someone who's allegedly a gang member you know, commits a burglary, they're saying, oh, he's trying to fund the, the Mexican mafia when probably he's trying to get money from the cell. So it's not a gang-related incident. Or if there is white, they would just say, oh, okay, he's just committing a burglary. We're talking with Dan Kapelovitz, criminal defense attorney and candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Let's talk about the prosecution of law enforcement officers, uh, police officers and and deputies. Under the Gascon administration, there's been a significant increase in the number of charges that have been filed against officers for misconduct or for use of force, alleging it's illegal force. Uh, If you were elected district attorney, what would your policy be about prosecutions? Well, if an officer broke the law, we'd prosecute them. You know, there's good cops, bad cops, good defense attorneys, bad defense attorneys, judges, prosecutors. Uh, I believe most people are good, but if someone commits a crime, I'm not going to not prosecute them uh, because they're an officer, and I'm not going to prosecute someone because they're an officer just for political reasons. It it uh, appears historically it is very difficult to get a conviction of a law enforcement officer. Would the difficulty in securing a conviction factor into your decision on prosecuting those cases? Um, if it's difficult because there's not enough evidence, yes, I wouldn't file it. But if it's difficult because you don't think you can get 12 jurors to agree, I don't think that's a reason not to file charges.
Let's uh, let's talk about some of the other uh, policies of, of Gascon's administration, uh, not pursuing the death penalty uh, in cases. And he said last week on the program, one of the reasons for this is that uh, when we had the most recent uh, uh, vote on the death penalty, that in Los Angeles County, voters actually showed they were against the death penalty, unlike the state uh, in total. What would you do if you were DA when it comes to uh, potential death penalty prosecutions? Well, I'm definitely against the death penalty. I would never seek it for many reasons. Uh, Just the fact that innocent people have been put to death or been on death row and exonerated is reason enough. Uh, It's a waste of money, money that could be used to prevent crime. Uh, It's done in a racially biased way. The Supreme Court says it's okay if, if you're, you're more likely to get the death penalty for killing a white person than for killing a black person, that alone makes it, in my mind, unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause. Um, yes, in L.A. County, and I think it's 2016, the majority voted against the death penalty. I'm running in L.A. County. I'm representing the people of the people of the state, yes, but the people of L.A. County. Uh, a huge percentage support um, Newsom's moratorium. And so it is the will of the people not to seek the death penalty. We're talking with Dan Kapelovitz, criminal defense attorney and candidate for Los Angeles County DA. So you you opened by saying that um, the district attorney has not been able to get his staff on board in carrying out the reforms that he committed to after he was elected and during his campaign. What would you do if you were elected as an outsider without the experience of being within this department to get that cooperation that you say is lacking? Well, first of all, on day one, even before day one, I would hire the best and brightest attorneys to fill the more than 200 vacancies that are in the office, about 25%. I don't no idea why Gascon has not done that. People that would probably listen to him, listen to his directives. They'd be loyal to him for hiring them. And I don't know why he hasn't done that. Also, I get along. I probably know more deputy district attorneys than Gascon does. Um, I deal with them every single day in court. We often disagree on what outcomes should result in the cases, but I get along with them very well. And I'm going to put I'm not against putting veteran uh, people in the DAs in the office in high positions. They have a wealth of knowledge about the uh, the office. And I'm, I'll listen to anybody and anyone who has a good idea. I don't care where it comes from. Uh, I'll accept it. We've heard from a number of uh, those seeking this office uh, who have uh, decried the drug courts losing their prominence in the criminal justice system because of not having the ability to coerce someone into treatment. Um, what's your view of, of that philosophy versus the care courts that have been established by the state of California and uh, the general policy for, for drug prosecutions that this DA has, has undertaken? Well, first of all, if you coerce somebody into a drug problem, anyone who will tell you that's probably not the best way to become sober and free of drugs, you sort of have to do it on your own. But um, they do have... Uh, misdemeanor convictions for simple possession, and um, there is jail time hanging over people's heads. Uh, I wouldn't charge even misdemeanor uh, possession because basically you're punishing someone for being addicted to drugs. You're punishing someone for a health issue, and they say, my opponents say, well, that's not illegal, but 
possessing a little bit of drugs is, well, yeah, if you're addicted to drugs, you're going to possess a little bit of drugs. So you're punishing, you're criminalizing a health, someone with a health problem. Um, I agree we should increase uh, the beds. It's hard to even get uh, a client into a bed in a drug program. Uh, we need to put more money in that. Uh, as DEA, I'd lobby for funding for that. I would uh, not waste time such on the death penalty. Things like that could go to actually mental health treatment, drug treatment, helping veterans. And so you can actually prevent crime uh, if you're smart about it. Dan, I, I thought that the DA's office was not prosecuting simple possession cases that um, have to be cases of significant enough quantities that it was uh, for sale. But you're, you're saying that they do prosecute some possession cases for personal use? Um, actually, I mainly do felonies. I haven't gotten those maybe since Gascon has uh, taken office. But if you have a little bit more than a little bit, they say it's possession for sale, even if it really is for personal use often. Uh, people And people do sell a little bit to fund their habit. And so they're facing felonies. And how would does does fentanyl and um, the death toll of fentanyl affect your view at all of prosecuting drug crimes? Well, yes. I mean, fentanyl is people are dying from it all the time. Uh, a lot of it's because they're taking a drug and they don't even know it's laced with fentanyl. So I know it's controversial, but maybe we should be decriminalizing drugs so we can actually, you know, people know what they're buying or doing. We're talking with Dan Kapelovitz, who's criminal defense attorney. He's seeking the L.A. County DA's job. One of the uh, issues that's been debated during this campaign is the prosecution of juveniles, um, where the DA has said that in almost every case, he is not comfortable with someone 16, 17 years old being in adult court, uh, facing charges there because uh, of the uh, brain development that has not occurred at that age. Um, many of the candidates for this office have said that there are particularly heinous cases where it would be a public safety risk for the person to be released just a few years after being in juvenile custody so that uh, they need to be considered for prosecution in adult courts. What's your view? Um, I agree that we shouldn't be trying children as adults. Um, Gascon's actually backpedaled on this issue probably because of the elections coming up. And I've heard from people who are in those courts he's actually worse than Jackie Lacey in terms of trying to try some people as adults, especially high-profile crimes. Um, I wouldn't do anything based on whether it's high-profile or based on politics. People want to vote for me, then they can, and I'll do what they voted for. Uh, it is The brain does not fully develop until the mid-20s because people, I'm getting questions, what if they're 17 years and 364 days and they commit a heinous crime? Well, to tell you the truth, even if they're 21 years old, their brain hasn't developed. Are we going to throw someone's life away when they're 16 or 17? You know, I was pretty wild when I was 16 or 17. I'm completely different now. Am I going to spend life in prison without parole, which is available for juveniles, and just throw another life away? Wouldn't an adult court, though, be able uh, to have a sentence because of someone's age that would be less than life, but maybe more than a mandatory release at age 25 or whatever would come from juvenile custody? They can, but if you went to trial and you were convicted of a special circumstance murder, you're going to get life without the possibility of parole. And you're also, uh, then the judge decides the sentence. So, you know, judges may not take that into account. We're talking with Dan Kapelovitz, who's criminal defense attorney and candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Uh, Dan, I wanted to also ask you about um, 
property crimes and prosecutions there. We've got the $950 threshold in Proposition 47 under uh, under that threshold. It's a misdemeanor. Uh, what's your view? Do you think Prop 47 is, has uh, achieved what it set out to do? And do you think it should stay as is? Yes, I think it should stay as is. Um, first of all, there have been increase in theft crimes. And I blame it on the fear mongers because they're telling everyone, oh, if you commit a theft, nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, Gascon won't charge you. That's not even true. I get these cases all the time, and they're charged as felonies because it's very easy to meet $950. You steal one Louis Vuitton bag, and there you go. Um, And so they're actually causing the crime. Imagine if we told everyone, oh, if you commit a bank robbery, you won't even get arrested. You get cited out, and Gascon won't even charge you. Uh, Bank robberies are going to go up. So that's what's happening. It's like copycat crimes based on the media and the fear mongers. And violent crime is down. Now we can't give Gascon the credit either way, um, but we are actually safer, you know, statistically than we were three years ago. And everyone's saying we're more, de- more in fear. Now people feel they're in fear because of the fear mongers. And so it's just a perception. We got to deal with reality. Dan, we're just about out of time, but just want to give you a chance for like 20 seconds or so closing uh, remarks to the listeners as to why you think they should vote for you. Well, I am the most progressive candidate, uh, more progressive than the Gascon. I'm going to uh, implement these good directives, even better ones. Um, I'm going to treat people equally. I'm going to do what I say. I'm going to really, I can make things happen. I get along with people. I work with people all the time. I don't care who they are. And um, and it, it'll vote your conscience. Dan, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Dan Kapelovitz, a criminal defense attorney running for L.A. County District Attorney. We have now interviewed 11 of the 12 running for office. One of the candidates declined an offer to appear. All 11 of these interviews, which are approximately 15 minutes, can be found at LAS.com slash voter game plan. There are links to the audio of all of those. Plus, Frank Stoltz has also uh, had the candidates fill out a questionnaire on topics. You can see that there as well as a part of our voter game plan. That's LAist.com slash VGP for voter game plan, or you can write it all out. Coming up, we talk about how pop songs are getting shorter. What are the reasons for that? We'll find out when we're back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Caught 
It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3, Bohemian Rhapsody, 1975 hit for Queen, nearly six minutes long, and yes, it was played on the radio. This is a time, of course, when albums have come to the fore, longer tracks are in an even radio, uh, bowing to public opinion, uh, puts on hit songs that are many minutes long. But what we're seeing now is a movie in the other direction to much shorter recordings. Significant percentage of uh, the records that were nominated in the Grammys given out Sunday night are under three minutes, more than 20% of those. What are the reasons why? Joining us to talk about the trend in popular music is John Bennett, musicologist who teaches at the extremely regarded Berkeley College of Music. Joe, thank you very much for being with us. What's driving this? Well, that's the question that immediately springs to mind, isn't it? You know, when I uh, spent time analysing that data uh, with the Washington Post recently, we noticed that there were, long story short, very short songs in the 60s, very short songs today, and a sort of peak in the 90s. So, of course, we can't say for sure what is driving these because pop music is, you know, it's part of popular culture and has many things influencing it. But we can look at some interesting correlations. Uh, so during the uh, the peak of the data when songs were four minutes plus, that was the height of the CD market in the late 90s. And of course, more recently, since 2017 and beyond, we have had the inexorable rise of TikTok. Well, and as, as someone actually listened to old, you know, uh, big band recordings and the like, and, you know, some of those going way back were recorded on 78s, and so very limited time, and you get these just gems, these nugget recordings that are so great, but are little bite-sized songs, and of course, the rise of the LP leads to to longer records, because it has an advantage over the 45 with, with its length of song, and, and as you say, CDs, which have greater capacity and make albums even longer because they can hold more than vinyl. So, uh, so Joe, how much of this do you think is the Spotify payment method that, um, you know, people need to listen to a certain length of the, was the 30 seconds of the song for the artist to get paid. So they move the hook up to get that in there very fast. You don't have a bridge necessarily. And, uh, the whole thing, you know, happens much faster. Well, yes, and obviously when you think about it, pop music has always needed to do that. It's always had a a sort of a creative motivation, certainly with singles, to try and grab the... Uh, the attention of the listener as time efficiently as possible you know if if it hits on the radio you want people to be able to remember it so the songwriter and the artist is incentivized to to get to the good bit quickly and i suggest what's happening with vertically scrolling social media is that it's simply accelerating that process so creators are even more incentivized to get to the good bit but to your point about audio formats, it's absolutely right. You know, the the technologies by which society listens to music have always influenced creators. You know, in the first half of the 20th century, we had the 32-bar standard, perhaps partly because that was something you could easily get onto two or three pages of sheet music, which was the dominant form of the early 20th century. And then, as you say, vinyl formats, the single has a runtime of about five minutes at 45 RPM. Um, Vinyl 
sometime around 25 minutes per side. And CD, of course, without flipping it over, you could go up to 74 minutes. And sure enough, we saw variations in song length that correlated approximately with these changes in format. Let's listen to uh, this single from Lil Yachty, uh, Poland. It's one minute, 23 seconds long. So, Joe, a minute, 23 seconds, Billboard Hot 100 hit, and a hit on TikTok as well. Explain to us you know, how the length of this factors into its success. Well, and it's interesting that with Poland, you've even got an, sort of an extended intro before you start getting to the hooks. <laughs> Which so is you funny. might even argue in song form terms, it's even shorter than that. Uh, but yeah, it's a great example of, uh, of a social media friendly song that it gets to the hook, that that uh, repeating um, chorus hook, I took the walk to Poland, it, it comes in almost straight away. And you and the song form sort of reflects that one minute plus arc that you end up with the the title hook being repeated three times. Then you get a brief middle section that contains some repetition, and then you finish with the chorus. So the song form is adaptive to its length, or vice versa. Also with us is Maura Johnston, who's music and culture writer, uh, teaches at Boston College as well. Maura, thank you very much for being with us. Let's talk a bit about the hook and its centrality to TikTok appeal, because um, this, of course, where you got other other people who do their own riffs on the hit song. So how how does the hook factor into that? Well, the hook is what brings people into wanting to hear a song over and over again and wanting to, you know, make videos about it or make TikToks or, you know, riff on it for whatever reason. And so I think that if you have a really potent hook, sometimes that's all you need. I think that, you know, it's interesting. The sh- One of the shortest songs in the Hot 100 right now is a minute and 54 seconds, and it's called Lil Boo Thing. It's by an it's by an an artist named Paul Russell. And it's a very blatant flip of best of my love. And that's the hook. And I feel like, you know, the nature of streaming allows people to, if they want to repeat, listen to something, it's very easy. And obviously if something is shorter, you can spend half an hour re-listening to an 82 second song a lot more times than you can to a one, one that's three minutes and 20. How, how much do you think artists are considering this um, because, you know, so many of them making their money off of Spotify uh, that that wanting the repeat listen to it is at the center of their artistic decisions on length? 
don't know if it's at the center of the artistic decisions, but I would imagine it's a correlation. Certainly when I talk to artists, they talk about how they want people to hear their songs. And I think that's the ultimate goal of this. So making, you know, a sticky hook is something that will make a song more listenable or more able to sing along with in the car, which is another thing that a lot of artists tell me that they really want their songs to be able to do. And how have the, the you know, top artists, the biggest sellers, Taylor Swift, Olivia Rodrigo, um, how, how are those artists responding to this trend? Well, Taylor Swift's album, most recent record, um, you know, has some shorter, like it has an average shorter songs than it did during her early career. But she also did put out the cult favorite 10 minute version of her song All Too Well, which, you know, was something that she first mentioned in, I think, 2017. And it became kind of legendary among her fans. And then it became a centerpiece of her concert, which that's kind of amazing, too, when you think that, you know, a concert is some, something with perpetual motion and everything. And yet the whole crowd is riveted for this almost 11 minute song. With Olivia Rodrigo, I actually was looking at her album and, you know, her latest album, Guts. It's 12 songs and 39 minutes long. So it is averaging around the three minute per song. She, she just performed Vampire at, at the Grammys. I don't know how long that track is, but. It seems longer because it has multiple sections, but it's still, it's actually pretty compact. We've so often seen artists sort of push back against the dominant strain in music when it moves in a certain direction. And uh, is that something you think we're going to see about length of song? I could see that for sure. I mean, you know, the one thing about digital music is that it's kind of unbound, right? People still do release these very long songs, Taylor Swift being obviously the most prominent example. But there are artists that, you know, can chop up, you know, take take a bunch of songs and turn them into a single track suite or take a really long song and chop it up into 45 pieces that are each a minute long. So I think that you're going to see... Certain artists certainly, you know, try to buck the trend, but at the same time, people want to be heard. So I, I don't know if it's going to prioritize appeal over late. All right. Vampire, by the way, is three minutes, 39 seconds. My thanks to Maura Johnston, teaches at Boston College and music and culture writer has been writing on the industry for almost 30 years. And my thanks to Berkeley College of Music, musicologist Joe Bennett as well. Coming up next, NPR's Here and Now, and I'll be back with you, of course, tomorrow morning at 9, right after Morning Edition for Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. Have a great day. The LAist Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.